from ARUP Laboratories on the campus of the University of Utah. Welcome to the LabMind podcast, where we discuss the future of diagnostic laboratory testing. I'm Dr. Brian Jackson. Today is Tuesday, April 16th, 2019. I'm very excited to have as our guest on LabMind today, Dr. Ron Weiss. Now, for most of our audience, Dr. Weiss is not going to need an introduction. He's been a major figure of the laboratory industry and academic pathology for, um, for a number of years. But for anyone that doesn't have that background, Dr. Weiss is an academic hematopathologist, uh, recently retired from being professor of pathology at the University of Utah, where he had his clinical practice. He was also an important figure in the founding of AREP Laboratories back in the mid-80s, and over the years was in a number of executive positions, including uh, director of laboratories, uh, director of business development, uh, president, and chief operating officer. So, uh, Ron, welcome to LabMind. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. My first question, just going back into your background and the layout of your career and everything, you trained as a hematopathologist, and then somewhere along the line, you got pulled into all these business functions. I'm curious how that happened. Was it sort of circumstances? Was it some personal interests of yours? Was it you know, serendipity? Well, I think all of the above, uh, but just by way of, of background. So going way back, my father was a sole proprietor, ran his own business. What was the business? It was called the Omaha Card Mart. It was a wholesale retail business that primarily had a client base of schools, organizations, and he would sell them a variety of greeting cards, novelty items that they could use for their fundraisers. So that was the major part of his business. And I grew up working primarily summers when I wasn't in school at the business. And it's where I began to develop this sort of personal sense of what it was like, the trials and tribulations in his case of being a sole proprietor, but I learned customer service. You know, I was forced to be out there with the public coming in, which was for a a teenager awkward, but I learned to at least try to interact with people in a friendly customer service oriented way. Some basic accounting. Uh, He let me keep many of the books over time for the business. Some operations management, inventory management, which, of course, I didn't know that that's what that discipline was when I was doing that, filling shelves and doing things like that. But So he really encouraged me to learn skills that would benefit me in whatever I did in the future. He kind of twisted my arm to learn to type. Actually, I learned shorthand, which I don't remember anymore, but uh, I certainly still use those typing skills. Anyway, he really encouraged me to to learn those basic skills so that no matter what I did in the future, that they would be a value. Of course, typing is clearly now a value with, uh, with word processing. So when I found myself in the world of academic laboratory management here at the University of Utah, I really found that management skills and knowledge were really going to become a necessity for me. Uh, particularly as ARUP got off the ground. And my mentor, John Manson, who was uh, chairman of pathology at the time, and of course the uh, founding president and CEO of ARUP, he really encouraged me to learn more about uh, the business side. So did he have any business background? He was a pretty pure academic doctor, wasn't he? So John was a pediatrician. He wasn't a pathologist. He uh, was a medical microbiologist. And I think When he came to the University of Utah, he brought with a skill set in managing a clinical laboratory. And 
I don't know that he had any formal business training as such, but he certainly learned how to do effective laboratory management when he was uh, running from other things, including the microbiology lab uh, at the university hospitals and clinics. And then when ARUP was started, he used his skills as a leader to demonstrate to the University of Utah that a physician could run the business side of a laboratory medicine practice. And I I think he he gained the credibility Mm -hmm. uh, in doing so. I think with that as a background and his, uh, his clear leadership skills as a chairman, that he encouraged me to become more involved. So my father had exposed me to decades ago, had now come full circle. When I uh, told John that I thought I needed formal training in business, he encouraged me. I found my way into the executive MBA program here at the University of Utah School of Business. He supported me in that. and So that was after you had joined the faculty and you were doing hematopathology? and Well, I wasn't doing hematopathology yet. In fact, I was um, practicing general surgical pathology at uh, St. Mark's Hospital, which is a community hospital here in Salt Lake that uh, at the time John had negotiated with hospital administration to take over and staff the Department of Pathology. And so... Clinical labs were part of that. Uh, when I uh, went down there to, to do surgical pathology, I also uh, was director of laboratories for that hospital laboratory. It was at that time that I was also going to school, and the way that was structured, it was all day Friday one week, all day Saturday next week in, in class. And so I needed the support of the other pathologists there because I continued to practice and needed to carry my load down there, but they were very supportive and encouraging as well. So um, hematopathology uh, became a part of my career through the mentorship by Carl Chelsberg. Carl, world-renowned hematopathologist, subsequently became chairman of pathology after John, but I migrated from general surgical pathology to uh, my interest in hematology and hematopathology, and I learned hematopathology at the microscope with Carl. Didn't do a formal fellowship. Uh, At the time, I was able to uh, to sit for the subspecialty boards in hematology based on um, experience. So I was sort of grandfathered in, and that was all because of Carl's mentorship. I didn't realize that you had another connection to Carl, which is that you both grew up in family businesses. I think that must not be coincidental. Coincidental or not, clearly Carl's experience, at least his family business, was orders of magnitude larger and more complex than than my father's. But uh, yeah, I think we probably both uh, got exposed at least to um, what it was like to run a business. So one of the things that you are well known for here at ARUP is one of the principal individuals behind uh, what we refer to as the five pillars. The five pillars are a, can we call it a code of conduct here at ARUP? And they include provide excellent patient care, create a good working environment, do the right thing, improve continuously and act responsibly. So could you walk us through the origin of the five pillars? Why do we have this code of conduct here? As you've described it, a code of conduct, a value statement, a set of value statements, um, a way to describe the culture of ARUP. And I think that was part of the inception that I, that I recall was really to codify the mission and values of ARUP into these relatively easy to remember and repeat statements. 
And there were several people involved. I I certainly wasn't the principal in their inception. There were several people, primarily several members of the executive team at the time. And the idea really was to try and create something that an employee could describe if asked, what's the culture of ARUP? So we shared it with all the employees, visibly placed it prominently, you know, plaque in, in most of the meeting rooms that listed the five pillars and basically what went into each one of those simple statements. And for new employee orientation, all new employees were exposed to the, uh, to the five pillars. And usually it was a member of the senior management team. I remember having that uh, activity as well. Uh, as many of the others who were in senior management at the time, to meet with new employees during the orientation and explain what's the culture of this organization. So a skeptic could easily look at the fact that lots of companies have value statements, and uh, many of those companies uh, have you know actions that aren't always uh, concordant with their value statement. The you know Enron's the easy example to bring up, but but this is pretty common. So were you concerned back then about whether people would take this seriously and whether people would, you know, just see it as a PR effort or or something like that? No, I don't recall being overly concerned about people being skeptical of these five statements um, because, again, it's who we were as ARUP. So it's just a very matter-of-fact... Well, I mean, we... uh, we certainly spent a lot of time thinking through the exact words to use yeah. to best convey the culture around those five principles. So, you know, formulating them, announcing them to everyone, educating people internally as to what they mean, and then really embodying them in everything that we would do, every conversation we would have formally or informally, whether it was in a meeting internally or in meetings with clients, prospective clients, um, and, you know, the whole intent was to continuously validate these through the actions, the everyday actions of, of everyone here. And one way to think about it is an ongoing measure of success for an organization is doing good in order to do well. So do good, do good to people, do good for people, and you, you have a good opportunity to do well as an organization in terms of financial sustainability. So let's talk about that, particularly in the healthcare space. I think most healthcare companies would say that they believe in that. You know, whether it's a pharmaceutical company or a hospital chain or, or whatever, everyone says that they're in healthcare to do good. But we know that there's a wide range of behavior of healthcare corporations. Sure. What do you personally see as the relationship between business success and doing good? being true to a set of ethical values. Is it merely compatible with that? Can it be synergistic with that? Should we be cynical and say that it's a, it's a drag on business success, but we should do it anyway? I mean, how do, how do you formulate that in your head? Well, again, it comes back to what kind of culture you create within the organization. What do you place the greatest value on? within your organization and and the goals of your organization. You know, it it certainly sounds somewhat Pollyanna. That's the risk in this whole conversation. (laughs) In many ways, it's it's the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I remember Carl repeatedly saying, treat your employees well. If you treat them well, they'll treat our customers well. So you have this flow through. You, you create this sense of trust. And 
to try and get people to buy into the value statements and trust the value statements and the people who are articulating them, particularly at, at the senior management level, really means you have to have a culture of trust, which means that there has to be transparency, accountability, empathy. Empathy is very important. Strong emotional intelligence is very important in leadership and really a commitment to others by being selfless, not selfish. And it's easy to be cynical, particularly when we hear in public discourse today, there's all this derision of truth and science. But science is the basis of what we do in medicine, and ethical practice is how we deliver that science to the care of patients, and it really all comes back to that care of patients. Once you've built that culture, which it takes a great deal of time and effort and to establish, but it's really easily, easily destroyed and undermined, and you, you alluded to or, other organizations like Enron. I suspect that perhaps early on they had built a strongish culture of trust, but that was totally eroded in, in basically no time. And you, you don't get that back. There are a lot of companies with a very explicit value of we are going to play within the rules just as far as we need to you know, avoid getting in trouble. And then anything beyond that, well, that's just capitalism. What do you think? Well, I think for any organization that's trying to succeed and succeed for the long term in a very complex environment, and healthcare is perhaps one of the most complex environments, it takes a lot of effort and it takes this balance between short-term gain, a short-term horizon, and you know, you look at publicly traded companies and they always have that quarterly earnings report that they're focusing on. Mm -hmm. So they have a very short-term focus. So trying to balance that with this long-term focus that really gives you sustainability, yeah. I think is not easy. So that raises an interesting question. When, when you were in leadership at ARUP, what kind of, a, of time horizons did you tend to think in terms of? Well, you know, of course we had um, a budget and, you know, it was important uh, that we were going in the right direction with managing that budget. And there were monthly financial reports, quarterly financial reports, and annual reports. But we didn't have that Wall Street pressure that if you miss what the analysts were predicting yes. for your number for that quarterly earnings report, even if it was still ahead of what you projected, um, your stock could suffer. And when your stock goes down, your value goes down. So there was always that, that challenge, which we didn't have to face. So you didn't have the temptation to cut corners for a quarterly profit that you didn't feel was the best interest of the company long term? I feel like we didn't have that, uh, that pressure. That, uh, yes, the, uh, the, un the university as our owner had expectations, but as long as we were doing well, I think we had the leeway to do it in a way that we were most comfortable doing it. So talking about the university aspect of this, I think there's some business leaders who might see running a company, particularly a medium to large size company, uh, as being outside the natural realm of a university. And I could imagine certain business leaders, maybe even you know, here in a place like the Wasatch Front, looking at AUP and wondering when that was going to be turned over to quote unquote professional management. Did you expect that kind of a reaction? Well, there was a variety of reactions to the establishment of ARUP. One, there was backlash from community pathologists who, who really saw ARUP as a way to unfairly compete 
in their environment. And there was a lot of concern in the community that uh, with the university behind it, that ARUP uh, was there to eat their lunch. Even within the department in the beginning, there was a lot of skepticism. And I wasn't in the room at the time, but I know it from hearing stories that there were members of the faculty who saw this venture of the Department of Pathology as, uh, as jeopardizing the academic and educational mission of the Department of Pathology. So there was even pushback within the department. But John, uh, again, was able to convince people through results, through outcomes, that uh, that was not the case. Did you run into external skepticism? I think that um, John and others handled that from the very beginning by recognizing that as physician leaders, they couldn't do it all. In order to have a successful enterprise like ARUP, you'd need uh, experts in a variety of different realms, finance, information technology, operations management, business development, sales and marketing, you would need individuals who had expertise in those areas. So they brought them in quickly into the early ARUP in order to uh, try and better assure that this would get off on the right foot. Even then, there were still skeptics. Another angle that interests me here is not just academics running a large business, but people with clinical backgrounds uh, running a large business. So there's a growing literature that indicates that the small proportion of hospitals who have physicians as CEOs uh, outperform all the rest. Yet, unlike you and Carl Sheldsberg, who grew up in family businesses, most people who go into medicine really don't have any formal business training. You know, occasionally someone will get an MBA, but that's still the exception. So I guess my first question is, what do you think of that phenomenon that physicians seem to be more effective leaders of healthcare organizations than, say, non-physicians? Well, I think that physician CEOs are not a guarantee of success for a healthcare organization. But I think what they bring to the table, what they provide is, in terms of leadership perspective, is one that's rooted in the physician-patient relationship. And since healthcare organizations are in the business of, of providing healthcare and providing healthcare to patients, that having a firsthand understanding of that patient-physician relationship and that, that bond, that contract, between a physician and a patient is very important and is a perspective that unless you've been trained and been there, you won't have. This is going to sound really naive, but are you suggesting that organizational success for a hospital really comes down to success in meeting the needs of each individual patient? I'd like to believe that that's where in the practice of medicine to do and the business of medicine to do is to meet the needs of our patients. So why do so many healthcare organizations seem to not act that way? Whether it's, you know, multiplying the price of your generic insulin by a thousand percent or devoting your R&D resources on medical devices to extending your patents rather than truly innovating or, or, or any of the things that, you know, hospitals or insurance companies sometimes do to keep their profits up at the expense of individual patients. As I said, it's a complex environment in which we work and there are temptations, obviously, to do well first rather than to do good. So when you talk about the complexity of a healthcare organization, that suggests that there are a lot of complicated trade-offs between different issues or, or maybe issues of balancing one goal against another goal. Do you, do you think medical training prepares you for that kind of decision-making? I think to a point. 
again, we're all humans. Uh, we're, we're subject to the same human frailties of greed, <laughs> of uh, being self-serving first rather than selfless. And clearly there are examples of physicians understand what it means to practice ethically who get off track. And often it's because of what may be described by some as perverse financial incentives within our healthcare system. Again, it's a complex system. There's a lot of money in healthcare, and there's a lot of ways to redirect the flow of money, perhaps to siphon off some of that money. And it's part of why I think there's so much cynicism at many levels from the public patient level all the way up to federal lawmakers and uh, policymakers who feel that uh, there's just too many opportunities within our system to cut corners, and usually you're cutting corners to make a, a personal profit. There's certainly a lot of areas of healthcare where we have inadequate transparency and inadequate disclosure. But in those cases where the disclosure does happen and, and where there is transparency, uh, do you think that the that the healthcare community, including scientists, including physicians, do you think the community is good at holding each other accountable, provided that the information's out there? That's a complex question. I think that we have the tools to do that, but in some cases, there may not be the wherewithal, the will to do that, uh, particularly if it is something that is going to come back in some way to bite you or haunt you personally. Don't you think that sunshine and disclosure facilitates that will? Oh. Yeah, there's no doubt that the whole idea of the sunshine laws as it relate to these kinds of complex conflicts of interest and disclosing them is more likely to create a public sense of trust. Mm -hmm. and I, again, it comes back to this. Uh, there has to be a sense of trust in the healthcare system. Here's a question that's maybe a little bit personal, but what's your level of optimism with U.S. healthcare? It's really easy to get discouraged about all of the problems and certainly the, the out-of-control costs in U.S. healthcare. But what's, what's your overall level of optimism for this industry, this profession over the next well, I, years I, or so? I think that uh, I'm not sure whether I've been accused of it, but I, I tend to be an optimist. So the quick answer to that is I'm optimistic about the future of U.S. healthcare. You know, that said, clearly we spend more money on healthcare in this country than any other developed nation in the world. And that is reaching a point where it's not going to be sustainable in terms of the future of this country uh, and the financing of this country. I know that there's more than one way in which the system can be changed. It won't be changed overnight. And now we're sort of crossing over into the realm of politics. There clearly are political proposals on how to reform healthcare in this country. I won't spend any time talking about any one in particular, but I, I think there's more than one way to do it. It's just a question of how many people are interested enough, engaged enough, and willing to work hard enough to change it. The converse of that question might be, can you think of any industry that has more people and more dedicated people and more interest in change than in healthcare today? Sounds like a rhetorical question. <laughs> <laughs> no, certainly healthcare is really probably the largest industry in, in this country. And, uh, you know, when it comes down to it, there's a lot of very, very good people who work in healthcare. I think that, uh, who knows? 
10 years from now, what will, what will everything look like? And I think it'll probably take that long to begin to redirect how this system works. But at some point, someone is going to say, we've got to do it. So Ron, Dr. Weiss, thank you so much for coming in for this interview today. Uh, it's been really fun to, uh, to have this chat. Ryan, thank you uh, as well. You're certainly welcome. And I appreciate the opportunity to sit here and have this conversation. Thank you for listening to the Lab Mind podcast, sponsored by ARUP Laboratories. ARUP is a not-for-profit enterprise of the University of Utah and its Department of Pathology. You can find more Lab Mind podcasts at www.arup.utah.edu or subscribe to Lab Mind using iTunes or your favorite podcast app.